If you'll take your Bible with me today and if you'll open to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read beginning in verse 3 down to uh, verse 12. And as you know, this is called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This was one of five discourses that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, This is uh, probably the longest of all of those. I know it's uh, certainly one of the top two. I think it is the longest uh, of the discourses that are recorded for us. And what we're going to be studying over the coming weeks uh, is what we call the Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin word beatus, uh, Beatitudes. Uh, The Latin word beatus means blessed. And so we're going to be talking over the next uh, several weeks about these Beatitudes. And I hope that you'll join me every week. We have one break in this series uh, for a special couple of Sundays. But beyond that, we'll be back here every week talking about these very special things spoken by Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to a study of the Beatitudes, I pray that, Lord, you'll speak to our hearts and help us to see the real truths and principles of your kingdom. Lord, we're raised in a society that teaches the opposite of these things, and we understand in the work-a-day world where we spend most of our lives, maybe there are things that we need to do that we've been taught to do that are important to do, but Lord, the reality is to be the kind of followers of Jesus that we need to be, we've got to learn the Beatitudes, and they've got to become our attitudes. So, Lord, speak to us today, I pray, and cause us as we begin this series to recognize the truths that are presented here. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. There's an interesting story about an unusual bike race that is held in India. The object of this race is to go the shortest distance possible. Did you get that? the shortest distance possible within a specified time. And so at the start of the race, everyone brings their bikes to the starting line, and when the gun sounds, all the bicycles, as best they can, don't pedal. Racers are disqualified if they tip over or if one of their feet touches the ground. 
And so they inch forward just enough to keep their bikes balanced. And when the time's up and the gun sounds again, the person who has gone the farthest is the loser. And the person that's closest to the starting line is the winner. Sounds like an interesting kind of a race, doesn't it? But imagine for a moment that you entered that race and you didn't understand the rules of the race. And so when the race starts, you pedal as hard and as fast as you possibly can. You're out of breath, you're sweating. You look back and you're delighted because all the other racers are still back at the starting line and you think to yourself, this is the best start to any race I have ever had. I've come out of the blocks like a bullet. I mean, it seems like they're just totally left behind and you're so excited about being out in front. You look back every once in a while and there's nobody around you and you just know this is going to be a race you're going to win. You have to win this race. You're out of breath, you're sweating, you're pedaling as hard and as fast as you go, and then you hear that gun go off again. And you realize that you didn't win the race, you lost the race. Rather than going farther than anyone else went, you're farther behind than anybody else in this race. You know, sometimes that's a lot like it is in the Christian race. A lot of times we're busy pedaling and we're expending all of this energy and we're working hard and we're giving all of our effort and we're going as far and as fast as we can. And in the process, all of our energy is being spent and we're making every effort to make sure that we go as fast as we can. But in the process we find out that we didn't really know the rules of the race. We didn't really understand the rules of the race, and we get burned out. A lot of people get disillusioned. And in the process, some will walk away, and others will become bitter, and some will just be miserable. They'll just be miserable. You can see it in their faces, can't you? They're just miserable in this Christian race. I didn't understand the rules, and here I am giving everything I can, going as hard as I can, as fast as I can, as long as I can, as much as I can, and I just am miserable in this Christian race. You know, it's human nature to go and to do and to be busy, isn't it? We want to feel that we're contributing to our own spiritual growth through the actions of our lives, and of course, Doing the right things is absolutely important, but they're secondary to becoming the right person. Doing the right things is secondary to becoming the right person. And it's in the Beatitudes that we're shown what it means to become the right person. This race that we're running is different to the way most of us were trained to live our lives. And that's why we're going to study these Beatitudes over the coming weeks. Now, I have a hope that you'll join me in. I pray you'll join me in. We're going to be spending uh, at least eight weeks in this passage of Scripture. We're going to be reading these same verses every week over that course of time. And my hope is and my prayer is that all of you will join me in memorizing these 10 verses, from verse 3 to verse 12. 
You can just take each one each week and repeat it over and over until it sort of becomes ingrained in your mind. Or if you have another method for memorization, maybe put it on a card and carry it with you or put it where you go frequently so that you see it all the time. And then you just add these verses and memorize these 10 verses from chapter 5, verse 3 to chapter 5, verse 12. I believe that you'll find that it will be invaluable to your spiritual life in this Christian race that we're running. You know, something interesting about the Beatitudes, as we've just read them, is that they're really like stair steps. Uh, you don't go to the very middle one first or the last one first. You begin at the very beginning. Blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you move up. In other words, you don't jump into the middle. You start at the beginning, and as you do, you begin to step up. And as you step up, you begin to see how they're all interrelated to one another. Another way to put this is they're like pearls in a necklace. And one is added to another and to another and to another until you have this beautiful necklace that brings glory to God and brings blessing to your life. And I think that all of us want to be blessed, don't we? Don't you want to be blessed? All of us want to be blessed. Well, Jesus is telling you in these verses how to be blessed, and it's going to be antithetical to most of what we're told is the way to be blessed in the Christian life. So today, we're going to look at this very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to look at this beatitude around three questions. If you're taking notes in the app, or you're taking notes online uh, at the website, uh, you'll find a place there for you to add some of these thoughts as I give them to you. But we're talking about it through these three questions. What does it mean, first of all, to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Second of all, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And finally, what does it mean by the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean by the kingdom of heaven? So let's begin with what does it mean to be blessed? I mean, when you think about the word blessed, what comes immediately to your mind? Does it mean we get an extra chicken nugget at McDonald's? Uh, does it mean the person in front of you at Starbucks paid for your drink? By the way, a couple of weeks ago, Mary and I, after church, pulled through the Wendy's line, and somebody ahead of us paid for our meal in the drive-thru, paid for our meal. And we were so appreciative, weren't we? Any of you are welcome to do that anytime. <laughs> but does it mean that person in front of you at Starbucks paid for your drink? I mean, does it mean that you have hair unlike some of your friends? Think about it. Does it mean you get a close parking spot at Target? Oh, I am so blessed today. I got a parking spot right up front. Is that what it means to be blessed? This Greek word for blessed describes the person who is singularly favored by God. And therefore, in some sense, not in the one you're probably thinking of, but in some sense is happy. This person, in some sense, is happy. This was a powerful word to those who heard Jesus on this day. 
If you could put yourself back into the first century and you were one of those on that mountain at the north uh, side of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere around Capernaum and one of the hillsides, one of the mountains there, you, you would have heard it differently than we hear the word happy today. It literally means divine joy or perfect happiness. Uh, blessed implies an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that did not that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. It didn't depend on an extra nugget in the box or someone paying for your coffee at Starbucks or that special parking space. It didn't depend on any of that. The Greeks actually used this word blessed to describe the gods, little g gods, they described them as being self-sufficient and fully satisfied. They were blessed, they would say. The, the Jews used this word to describe God's life and goodness that's bestowed on a person or on a group of people. Maybe the best way is for us to just see a, a mental picture of this word. This word blessed was used to describe the Isle of Cyprus. Cyprus is in the Mediterranean Sea at the southern coast of Turkey. And it's known as the happy isle. And the word happy is the exact same word that's used here in Matthew chapter 5 in these verses where it says again and again, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. The idea of this blessed isle, this happy isle, was that if you were from Cyprus, you could live your whole life without ever needing to leave. Cyprus was such a fertile and beautiful land of great climate and rich soil and fruit, and livestock, and fish, and natural resources that you never needed to look outside Cyprus to have your needs met. We might say it today, it's my happy place. You have one of those, don't you? It's my happy place. And that's the idea, that it's contentedness. It's this whole issue of being fully satisfied in the Lord. In other words, there, there are no negative feelings or absence of feelings altogether or adverse conditions that can take away the blessedness of the person who exists in this kind of relationship with God. A person who is blessed, that's who we want to be, a person who is blessed. I was looking at a story recently about a dog named Sam. You know how precious our pets are and how important they are to us, but you got to understand Sam was a farm dog. He didn't have all the frills of other dogs that the dogs today enjoy. Uh, he was never allowed to beg at the table. As a matter of fact, he was never allowed to come inside the house. I mean, the owner of, of Sam always just took some of the table scraps and somehow they made out of those table scraps some kind of a gravy stuff. And that's what Sam ate. He never had a fancy doghouse. He never had a fancy bed. He never had a fancy dog sweater. I mean, Sam's only perk in life was that he was allowed to bark and chase the cars on the road. And there were people in that area who said, Sam's going to get killed out on that road. He's going to get hit by a car one day. But he never did. And Sam lived to be 21 years old. That's pretty good in dog years. 
I mean, seven to one, seven times 21, I'll take it. He lived a long time. But you know, the world, your flesh, and the devil want you to think that all you are entitled to is a life like Sam's. No frills, no promise, an empty kind of existence with just some scraps that are thrown to you every once in a while. And maybe you get the char- char- to, uh, to chase after the cars every once in a while, but that's just about the existence of your life. But I want you to know, as we go through these beatitudes, that God has so much more for us to experience. Life doesn't have to be a drudgery where you just get up and you press through and you're miserable to the end of the day till you can go back to sleep so you don't have to think about it any longer. And it's not a life that's lived at a pace that absolutely exhausts you so that you don't have any energy left at the end of the week or the end of the day. If you know Jesus and you have a relationship with him, you can have a blessed life. While the word blessed might be translated in some of your translations as the word happy, in my estimation, that doesn't really do it justice. To be blessed, are you ready? To be blessed is to enjoy God's approval and the fullness of life that flows from him. Let me say it to you again. To be blessed is to enjoy God's approval and the fullness of the life that flows from him. That's what it means to be blessed. Yes, you are blessed in one sense of the word if you get an extra nugget in your box. And yes, you are blessed in one sense of the word uh, if you get that special parking spot. You've driven around, and there it is. Somebody just backs out right up close to the front. Yes, you were blessed, but God means so much more for the blessing of your life than those kinds of blessings alone. Secondly, let's talk about what it means to be poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's start by what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you have a poor self-image. It doesn't mean that you have feelings that you're of no worth or of no value. Neither is he saying that to be poor in spirit means that you're gutless and you're spineless and you're awkwardly shy. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about being poor in spirit. If being poor in spirit is one of the rules of the race to the blessed life, the life where we have uh, this relationship with God that brings his approval and the fullness of life that flows from him, he's not talking about this kind of poverty that we might be thinking of. He's not talking about the way we see ourselves when we stand face to face with other people, and we compare ourselves one with the other. Do I look as good as she looks? Do I, am I as strong as he is? Can I do the things those people do? This isn't about you looking face to face with other people. That's not even wise for you to do. This is about how you see yourself when you stand face to face with God. And there's a huge difference between being face to face with others like ourselves and face to face with God. Actually, in the New Testament, the word poor, there's two different Greek words for the word poor. 
The first word is the word that speaks of a common laborer. It's the person who would get up and in the first century go to the marketplace and he would wait with the other common laborers for somebody to come by and to hire him for that day. And at the end of that day, he would get his money for that day and he would go home and he would have enough to put a roof over his head and clothes on his back and a little bit of food on the table. But he'd have to get up the next day and he'd have to go back and hope to be hired that next day. And he'd work the next day and he'd get at the end of the day something that would pay him so that he could continue what we might call today the working poor. The working poor. That's not the word that Jesus used when he says we should be poor in spirit. The word literally means to cower or to cringe like a beggar. Uh, It refers to the idea of begging because the person's poverty is so deep that they have no other option or choice. It's someone with no wealth in no influence, in no position, in no honor, in no respect, in no opportunity, and no ability to do anything but beg. They are totally and absolutely dependent on the goodwill of others. There's a couple of New Testament examples of what I'm talking about. You may remember the story in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. It says the rich man fared sumptuously. He had everything he wanted. He had clothes in his closet. He had a beautiful place to live. He had all the modern amenities of that day. But there was another man named Lazarus who sat at his table, if you will. He sat out by the trash dump, by the trash can, looking for the scraps that were left over. And he was begging for the rich man to have things left over so that he could have something to eat for that day. That's the picture of this poverty of spirit that we're talking about. Or think about the story of blind Bartimaeus. It's found in Mark chapter 10. Remember when Jesus was passing by and he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes to him and he says, What do you want me to do for you? He says, I want you to give me my sight back. He was a man who was cringing and cowering and he was begging. He had no other hope. He had no other help. He had to depend on the goodwill of Jesus, on the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it means when it says blessed. This life of fullness, this life of provision, this life of blessing that comes from God where none of your circumstances can ever disturb you in any possible way, it comes through somebody who has poverty of spirit. It doesn't say poverty of wealth or riches. It doesn't say poverty of things in this world. It says a poverty of spirit. And there's a temptation that we've got to resist as we go through the Beatitudes. And that temptation is to turn the Beatitudes into into values or into virtues that we have to pursue. Like blessed are the humble or blessed are those who trust. Virtues are things that we can aspire to. I can try to be humble. I can try to trust God more. But once we do that, we're right back into the self-help mode. I can do this. I can try harder. I know if I push longer, if I pedal more, if I sweat a little more, I can win this race. Being poor in spirit 
isn't a virtue to aspire to. It's a condition to confess. Did you get that? Being poor in spirit isn't a virtue to aspire to. It's a condition to confess. Oh, God, I cannot live apart from you. I must have your help. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean just coming to the end of your rope. We've all been there, haven't we? And you remember the saying, tie a knot and do what? Hold on for dear life. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean just coming to the end of your rope. It means coming to the end of yourself and recognizing how much you need God. How much you and I need God. Mary Lou Redding is the author of the book, The Power of the Focused Heart. In it, she writes these words. This beatitude, the one we're talking about today, this beatitude offers us a spiritual life based not on performance, but on dependence. We have been socialized in a culture where rugged individualism and self-determination permeate our way of thinking. An individualistic approach, she says, keeps us in control makes us feel as if we're in charge of our spiritual lives. She finishes, we can't conceive of what it would mean to desire poverty of spirit, to depend on God for everything. We can't even hardly imagine it. Just think about churches today. Today we have education, we have tools, we have finances, we have buildings, we have parking lots, we have padded pews, we have air conditioning, we have heat, we have all of these amenities. Did you know the early church didn't have any of those things and they turned the world upside down? And it was because they were blessed. And because they were blessed, or they were blessed because they understood that they were poor in spirit, that they needed the Lord. We understand what it means to be poor materially. It's not having enough money. It's not having enough food. It's not having enough health care. It's the unemployed father who can't find work and can't pay his rent. It's the single mom who's trying to raise her children in a homeless shelter. It's the child waiting in line in a refugee camp in Poland from the Ukraine war, hoping they won't run out of food before he gets there. They're dependent. They're absolutely dependent. Even more than just dependent, they're even desperate. They're desperate for God. The same thing is true of the poor in spirit. They don't have enough faith. They don't have enough strength. They don't have enough understanding. They need hope but all they have is fear. They try to do the right thing, but they consistently fail. They're the needy spiritually, and they know it. They need God. They're dependent on him, and they're even desperate for him. Are you desperate for God today? Are you desperate for what God alone can do for you today? Someone has said the closer you get to God 
the smaller you will become in your own eyes. The closer you get to God, the more you see how much you need God. And if you can't approach Christ with a poor spirit, then you need to approach Christ for a poor spirit. You need to say, oh God, help me to draw near to you so that I can see how great you are and how desperately I need you in what you do to bless my life. That's the way he wants us to live, and that's the way to the blessed life. I mean, do you need mercy? God has plenty. Do you need love? God has more than enough to give. Do you need forgiveness? God is the provider of it. Do you need joy? God has an endless supply. Do you need peace? God is its source. Do you need salvation? God's provided, hasn't he? I mean, everything that's really of any value or of any necessity in this life, God is the one who has provided. Everything that produces the blessed life comes from God. And until you come to that place where you throw yourself on the mercy of God and you say, Lord, if you don't help me, if you don't come to me, if you don't bless me, I can't live another day. This is the way the biblical authors live their lives. Isaiah speaking for God said in Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. A little later, Isaiah says on behalf of God, to this man will I, that is God, look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Or the psalmist, and there's so many of these in the Psalms that I, I can't read them all to you, but let me read two or three. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who are of a broken heart and save such as be of a contrite spirit. Or Psalm 34, verses 17 to 20, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's a passage I've been holding on to in recent days. Or Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I've got to have your help. I pant for you, God. I'm poor in spirit. I'm begging because you alone have what I need. I throw myself at your feet because I am nothing apart from you. When was the last time you felt completely helpless? What was going on in your life at that time? Maybe you were passing through marital problems or maybe you'd lost your job and you had no idea how you're going to provide for your family. Maybe you or someone you knew had a serious illness or maybe it was a temptation that you couldn't overcome. Or maybe it was as you were trying to reach a loved one with the gospel, or maybe 
it was because your heart had been broken or your dreams had been shattered. But the fact of the matter is most of us have been in that kind of a desperate situation on more than one occasion. And what did it do? If you're a believer in Jesus, what did it do? It drove us to prayer because we knew we couldn't take care of these things ourselves. We knew that we needed the help of God. We weren't smart enough. We weren't rich enough. We weren't strong enough. We weren't good enough. We just weren't enough. And so in our weakness, we had to look beyond ourselves for help. So we turned to God and we said, oh God, please help me. Friends, that's not supposed to happen just in the moment of crisis. That's supposed to be the way we live our lives every single day. Where we recognize that we are poor in spirit. The closer we get to God, the more how insignificant we see ourselves as being. And Lord, if you don't help me today, I won't get through this day, or I won't do the right things today, or I won't make the right choices today, or I won't live as you would have me to live today. Lord, I desperately need you. That's how he wants us to live every day of our lives. Now, I'm about to give you something. I hope you'll make a mental note of it. And if not a mental note, I hope you'll write it down and you'll not ever forget it. This is absolutely essential. This has to do with the rules of the race of the Christian life that are being revealed here in the Beatitudes. Please don't forget it. Self-sufficiency, self-improvement, and self-reliance are all traps that will stifle your spiritual life. I'm going to say it again because I want you to remember it. Self-sufficiency and self-improvement and self-reliance are all traps that will stifle your spiritual life. But they're some of the signature sins of the human race. They're some of the signature sins of my own life. Being... Being poor in spirit might not play well in the corporate world or on the athletic field or in the political arena. Being needy and dependent and desperate might not be one of those things that's very valuable in those environments. But until we come to that place in our spiritual lives, not only will the kingdom of heaven not be ours, we won't be blessed either. Not only will the kingdom of heaven not be ours, we won't be blessed either until we come to the place where we've emptied ourselves of ourselves and we've said, Lord, I can't do this apart from you. I wish I did it every day. I got up today, I guess, because I was thinking of this message. And before I put my feet on the ground, I said, Lord, I need you. Lord, to get through today, I need you. I need your strength. I need your help. I need your empowerment. I need your clarity of thought. I need, Lord, for you to undergird me and to help me throughout the course of this entire day. Wouldn't that be a great thing if we just did it every day? If we just remembered every day to get up and say, Lord, before I start today, I just want you to know I need you. I need you every hour. I need you. You know, I was thinking about this whole attitude of 
dependency on God and even desperation for God. And I got to thinking about the life of Jesus. Did you know in the Gospel of John alone that there are at least, if I counted right, there are at least 13 times that Jesus acknowledged his total dependence on his heavenly Father. Did you know that, that Jesus was desperate for his Father? I mean, he was desperate enough that he went into the desert and fasted 40 days to seek his Father's strength. He was desperate enough to get up early in the morning while the other disciples were still asleep and to slip through them up onto a mountainside and to go to his father to seek fellowship with him. He was desperate enough that he stood weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and looked to the heavens to call on his father's power. He was desperate enough that he faced the cross he sweat drops of blood seeking the Father's will. And do you know what the first recorded words of Jesus are in the Gospels? The first recorded words of Jesus are in the Gospels. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. When Jesus had gone missing from his parents, they were headed home and he had stayed behind. And they come back to find him and Jesus says, Didn't you know I had to be about my Father's business? Or do you know the last words that Jesus spoke? The last words that Jesus spoke from the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I don't know about you, but all those, sounds, all those things sound pretty intense to me. They sound dependent to me. They sound desperate to me. Jesus lived his entire life in complete dependence on his heavenly Father, and that's what it means to be poor in spirit. My daughter was driving home from work this past week, and she called me on the phone. And whenever she calls, I, I try to take the call always because I figure if she's calling me rather than her husband, she's actually called the right person. And we were talking on the phone. I'm having fun, by the way. I love my son-in-law, Jeremy. We were talking on the phone on the way home and talking about some of the things that, that I've been through and some of the things that, that she's been through. And she said, Daddy, she said, I, am, I, I just want to lean into Jesus more and more. She said, I just need more and more of Jesus. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I just need more in more of Jesus, to empty your heart of yourself and to say, Lord, myself, we're pedaling in this race. We're giving it all we got. We're sweating and our hearts are beating and we're breathing hard. But Lord, we're really getting burned out. Lord, what I need isn't more of what I can do. What I need is more of what you alone can do. We empty out our hearts and say, oh God, I'm dependent and desperate for you today. There's an interesting story about a Billy Graham crusade many years ago. I don't know if the story is 100% true, but it illustrates my point nevertheless. You know, during the time for invitation, Billy Graham would have everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes, and then the counselors and people who were responding would come down the stairways of the great stadiums around America, and for that matter, around the world, and they'd end up down there on the field. 
But something that I didn't know is that there were also counselors who watched various parts of the crowd looking for people who seemed to be under conviction. One of the counselors in particular noticed a man who was obviously broken. He was weeping and convulsing with emotion. The counselor moved down to him and said, Sir, wouldn't you love to walk forward and give your heart to Jesus? And the man said, No. I'm a leader in this community. What would people think? Can I just do it here in my seat? And the counselor replied, No. You'll have to get saved down there or not at all. The next night, in that same section, the same man with the same emotions, and the counselor said, Sir, wouldn't you love to walk forward and give your heart to Jesus? And the man said, No, my father is a minister in this community. What would people think? Can I just do it here in my seat? And the counselor said, No, you have to go down there or not at all. The third night, same section, same man, same emotions. The counselor said, Sir, wouldn't you love to walk forward and give your heart to Jesus? And the man said, I haven't slept in three nights. I'm miserable. I've never felt so lost and empty. If I have to go down with all those people to get saved, I'll do it. The counselor said, that won't be necessary. Now you can get saved right here at your seat. Do you understand the point? God has to empty our hearts before he can bless our hearts. And by the way, it's a whole lot better if we empty our hearts if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God rather than God having to humble us under his hand. Amen? Amen. Thirdly and finally, and I'll be quick with this, what does it mean by the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven is at least two things. You have to remember that Jesus, in the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, is speaking to the Jews Jesus had come offering his kingdom. You know, Elijah was going to come before him, and then Jesus was going to come and establish his kingdom, and Jesus was going to rule and reign over the affairs of mankind and over all of the earth, and Jesus came offering the kingdom to the Jewish people. But by the time you get to chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, the Jewish people have rejected Jesus, and by rejecting the king, they have rejected the kingdom. But be encouraged. There is still going to be that kingdom. And there is still going to be a day when Jesus is going to come a second time, and he's going to establish that kingdom on earth, and he'll sit on the throne of David, and there'll be peace everywhere. Won't that be wonderful? When he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, in essence what he's telling you is that there are rewards for those who display the attitudes of the kingdom. When you get into the kingdom, there are rewards that will be given to you in that kingdom. But there's a second understanding of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is as well about the rule of Christ in our own hearts. And this is where we find his presence and his peace and his power. In other words, we can experience the kingdom of heaven right now on earth. 
as we submit ourselves to him. Lord, I want you to be in complete control of my life. He will never be in complete control of your life. You will never know the blessed life until you come to the place where you're poor in spirit and you say, God, I can't do this without you. I need you every hour of my life. I want to close with a passage of Scripture that comes from the Revelation. Don't close your Bibles yet. In Revelation, you know the first chapter gives us a view of Jesus, the one who's about to come and to execute judgment on mankind, at the end of which he establishes his kingdom on earth. In chapters 2 and 3 are a list of the seven churches to whom the Revelation was written. They were the ones who were to read the Revelation first, and then it would be distributed so that even us today have the Revelation to read. But you get to that last church, the Laodicean church. A lot of people believe that's the end-time church. That's the last church before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It exemplifies the last church before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you remember what Jesus said about that church? He didn't have anything to commend them. He said, you're neither cold nor hot. Either one of those would have been helpful. Cold would have been good. Hot would have been good. But he said, instead of being cold or hot, you're lukewarm. You're not good for anything. You're not good for anything. He said, you make me so sick, I want to spew you out of my mouth. You remember what he said to them? I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth because, because, here's the reason. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Doesn't that exemplify how sometimes I live my life? Too often I live my life. And too often the way we all live our lives.